0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Sustainability Speaks. We are your hosts, Deja and Saskia. In today's podcast, we're
1: going to talk about animal conservation. According to the WWF, the current rate of extinction has been propelled at least 100 to 1,000 times due to human activity. And in 2018, they published a report which showed a 60% decline in the size of population of mammals, birds, fish, reptiles, and amphibians in just 40 years. So what, as humans, can we do to help reverse this? Today we're going to speak about some of the attempts that we've made across the world, touching upon zoos, sea world, trophy hunting and general attempts to bring back the animal populations.
0: So we'll start off by talking about zoos and what they do or what they don't do in order to aid conservation. So I'm pretty sure everyone as a young kid very much enjoyed going to the zoo, I know I definitely did, but apart from it just being a place of entertainment, so to say. Behind the scenes, zoos actually do do a lot of conservation. They do a lot of research, and as you can probably realise, the money that you pay to get into the zoo is used for that research, for conservation, and obviously, you know, to pay the employees and to pay for the animals' food, medical bills, etc. A main feature of zoos
1: is to spread information. And if you've ever been to a zoo, you'll see that they do tours and at each individual animal's enclosure, there's a section of information. So it's definitely true that they do spread information, but I personally remember as a child, I didn't really pay attention to this. I can't remember going to a zoo to learn about
0: animals. I just wanted to look at the animals basically. But I also think that because a lot of children are mostly visual learners, them seeing animals and you know appreciating how beautiful they are or even perhaps how entertaining they are that is still a process of them being educated about how amazing these creatures are but then also what happens behind the scenes um, as i briefly mentioned in the introduction is that the money that you pay to enter into the zoo is used for research and animal conservation and actually a lot of it is used and put forward towards breeding programs which are a very major part of trying to maintain the animal population and not let certain species go extinct. So as Stacia mentioned, for every ticket
1: sold there is a proportion of this that goes towards breeding programs. Each year there's 30 million visitors to zoos in the United Kingdom. They then use the money from the ticket sales to fund breeding programs. So often breeding programs are necessary because certain species in the wild are extinct or almost extinct. And this means that they often find it very difficult to find a mate. In captivity, it's so much easier for zoos to be able to match them and breed, even based on other factors such as desirable characteristics. There has been a few examples of where this has gone really well. For example, the Arabian Oryx. Apologies if I say that wrong. Um, They became extinct in the wild in 1972. So that was like, what, 50 years ago? And a program called Operation Ox moved the last of these into captivity to breed them. They then returned them into the wild in 1996 and the numbers had risen to 400. Currently, there's about a thousand of these in the wild, which is not huge amounts, but it's still a lot more than there was in 1996.
0: And if you don't know what the Arabian Oryx looks like, then I would quite encourage you to have a Google and have a look they're very beautiful animals, and I am most certain that they're poached for their horns because they have big, beautiful horns. I'm 21 now, so this seems so long ago, but I remember during my GCSE biology lessons, we were discussing conservation and extinction and breeding amongst animals, because I think we were doing, we were studying reproduction just overall. and My biology teacher said that obviously where animals are extinct due to human activity like poaching like with the arabian oryx then of course it makes total sense to invest money and breed them and conserve them and then try and rewild them but then as you as a lot of you probably know there's no pandas who live in the wild anymore and they're all attempted to be bred in captivity but pandas were never poached a lot of them started dying out because they live a very lazy lifestyle and they don't breed. Therefore the question arises should we also invest money and try and conserve animals such as pandas who don't have a threat from humans but are just dying out due to natural selections because they don't breed because they're very lazy. I would definitely say that we should let them die out and I know
1: that sounds really harsh but when we really think about it why are we breeding them they're not adding anything to the ecosystem this the process of them dying out is natural so really the only reason we are keeping them in captivity is for our own entertainment
0: yes i would agree with that and also it's very interesting because the biggest um because the biggest breeding program for pandas is in china and i know that a couple of years ago china leased one of their pandas to a moscow zoo And even though that might sound like it's just for entertainment and just for attraction of customers, a lot of major news outlets stated that this was actually a symbol of political alliance between the two countries, which I find very interesting. But also animals shouldn't be used as political bargains, should they?
1: 100% not. And they're not just being used for political bargains, they're also being used for profit. The Edinburgh Zoo are currently leasing their two giant pandas from China, for one million pound a year. These pandas had to travel 5,000 miles from China to Edinburgh. So not only does this raise animal welfare questions because how ethical is it to fly two pandas across the globe? It's also just purely for profit, both on the side of Edinburgh Zoo and China. Aside from this, some zoos have actually had some successful rewilding programs, such as two cheetahs from the animal park in Kent. They were born in the UK and raised and they were sent 6,000 miles to a cheetah sanctuary in South Africa. Here they were taught to hunt and they were just basically trained for the life in the wild. So far, this has been very successful. They're living their life like normal cheetahs. And I think this can just show that it is possible to rewild animals that have been born in captivity. The issue is that it's time costly and expensive. So, will we see more of this happening?
0: I totally agree with everything you've said. And also, I would like to emphasize the fact that rewilding animals, it doesn't mean just releasing them back into the wild. It actually means releasing them into conservation parks, which are still facilities that are run by people and that are monitored because inevitably, if you're rewilding an animal, then I would say that essentially you're putting it in more danger because animals, especially exotic animals, such as cheetahs, lions, tigers, are being poached at crazy rates. Definitely, and we're going to touch upon poaching a a lot more a bit later on in the podcast. So whilst we've been talking about conservation and the positive aspects of it and the way the zoos contribute, in reality it's not as picture perfect because, for example, at least 69% of the public believe zoos spend more money on conservation than they actually do. For example, Chester Zoo, they have an annual budget of £47 million per year coming in from ticket sales but their outgoings towards conservation are only one and a half million pounds. That doesn't really add up, does it?
1: No, I mean, I understand that they have to pay wages and, you know, bills, food, but there is absolutely no way that they only have 1.5 million in at the end of the year to spend on conservation, especially when it's one of the key points of a zoo.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And also, at the end of the day, zoos are not a non-profit organisation, they are a business. So I think when we think about zoos and the way they profit and how much they spend, we do need to keep this in mind. Because for example, zoos trade a lot of animals, which obviously they pay for or lease animals. Zoos have breeding programs where they either pay for an animal with a desired characteristic to be shipped to them so they can breed, or they pay for example, for sperm donations and artificial insemination. So they do still try and make as much profit as possible so while we were doing the research for this podcast i was actually really surprised
1: to find that the majority of animals in zoos are not actually endangered in a review of the uk's 13 most progressive zoos they found that 62 percent of species had absolutely no threat in the wild such as meerkats and otters and less than a quarter of these were categorized as vulnerable endangered or critically endangered and what surprised me the most is that the most endangered group of animals, amphibians, are only represented in zoos, just 0.6%.
0: I find that really surprising because amphibians don't take up a lot of space and I would presume that they would be very easy to, to take care of as well. But I think the issue here is, is that they're not the most pleasant to look at and they're not the most entertaining. You've also got to take into account the harsh conditions that some
1: of these animals endure in the zoos. So this doesn't necessarily mean the elephants in London Zoo or the tigers in Chester Zoo because they're well taken care of to an extent. I'm referring more to SeaWorld. Now I'm not sure if we could even classify SeaWorld as a zoo but I suppose they do house animals. So I don't know if you are aware but quite a lot of the orcas from SeaWorld were actually originally
0: stolen from the wild. An example of this is an orca called Kasatka, who was stolen from the wild at one years old and unfortunately she died in August 2017 after she allegedly suffered from a bacterial infection in her lungs since at least 2008. This is not the only incident of animal
1: neglect in SeaWorld. In a similar circumstance, her mate Kotar was killed after a pool gate closed on his head. This fractured his skull. He was also captured as a baby in Iceland and he believed to be the youngest orca that survived in captivity. In general, SeaWorld have a really bad reputation for looking after their orcas. Their tanks were roughly 10 metres deep and in 2015 they reportedly expanded them to 15 metres deep. Which, I mean, 5 metres is not a great difference when when you consider how big an orca is. And in the wild they can normally dive 305 metres. SeaWorld came under mass criticism in 2013 after the documentary Blackfish was produced. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. It's really informative and it's really eye-opening. One of the things that this documentary highlighted was the short lifespan of orcas in captivity. In captivity, the oldest orca to live was 30, and in the wild, they usually live between 50 and 80. So I think the backlash SeaWorld received from the documentary is probably the driving force behind them ending their breeding program. Thankfully in 2016 SeaWorld did say that they are no longer breeding orcas and the generation of orcas they have at the moment will be the
0: last. So moving on from zoos and SeaWorld, I did some research about trophy hunting and actually I had no idea that trophy hunting was seen as such a conservationist movement and even people like Charles Darwin and Theodore Roosevelt obviously this is going back of a load, loads of loads of years, they were active hunters and they actually saw themselves as people who are promoting sustain- sustainability and are promoting uh, the conservation of animals. So essentially what trophy hunting is, is the ability of people to go into conservation parks in Africa in particular, but they also do this in, in the United States and in Greenland, and pay money to the conservation park and be able to hunt the animals who are there And in a way this is controversial because animals who are placed in conservation parks the conservation park technically protects them against poachers aside from this conservation camps have actually come under a lot of criticism anyway because for example WWF they equipped eco guards with military equipment eco guards are the people who patrol the premises of the conservation park and prevent poachers from getting in But there have been numerous reports by organizations such as National Geographic that there have been major abuses of indigenous people who also live on the territory of conservation parks by eco guards. For example, the indigenous baka people, otherwise known as the pygmies, they live on the territory of a conservation park in Congo, which is also the home of a very rare species of forest elephants. And there has been numerous reports that eco-guards are actually partaking in the trade of bushmeat, which is illegal, and then they blame the killing of the protected animals on the indigenous people. There have also been numerous reports of sexual abuse of the indigenous people by the eco-guards. So alongside with obviously there being a lot of controversies about the way the conservation parks are run business-wise in relation to trophy hunting, there have also been numerous human rights abuses.
1: Trophy hunting is a multi billion dollar industry. So, to hunt a single elephant, hunters can pay upwards of $80,000, which is about £50,000. So, for example, in a conservation park in Namibia, they have a limit of five elephant hunts a year. Part of the money from this hunt goes to the conservation efforts of the park, and the other part goes to the indigenous communities alongside the meat or from the animal. The hunter gets a tusk to take home as a prize so i'm sure we've all seen on twitter people posing with dead animals in africa and how horrific this is to us
0: but the conservation camps and the advocates of trophy hunting justify it this way they say that okay so we let people kill five elephants but the money that we get from this allows us to save two and a half thousand so is this really how it works that's the question that arises in my mind Then other arguments for this is that A, by putting a price tag on the animal it allows you to appreciate it more and value it. Because for example, to kill a lion it costs $30,000, that is quite a lot of money. That is a whole lot of money, that's a deposit on a house, that's a new car. If I had that much money the last thing I would think to spend it on is killing a lion. Then some of the other justifications for example for shooting elephants is that the big tuskers, those are the desirable animal to kill because then you can take the tusks home. The justification for this is, is that the big tuskers are the older elephants because as you may probably well know, elephants live for up to 80 years and in order to grow those tusks the elephants need to be quite old. So essentially they're justifying this by saying that you're killing the older elephants as opposed to the younger ones. And one of the other justifications is for example There are poorer local communities who live very close to to these animals who are obviously dangerous. And in Southern Tanzania, there have been numerous attacks by lions who actually purposefully hunt humans for meat. Therefore, in the short video clip that I watched, the conservationist, he was actually justifying trophy hunting by saying that it would allow us to protect humans. But why should we value human life more than animal life? I understand that these communities don't have a lot of money but
1: from the Western world we could easily provide money to protect them in other ways like I'm sure we could build fences or create other barriers to stop the animals from coming near the humans
0: rather than just outright killing them. I very much agree with that and what I found very interesting is that a lot of representatives of the conservation parks on the continent of Africa and in the United States a lot of them actually said that they think it's more sustainable and a lot more ethical to kill your own food as opposed to, and is better for the planet, as opposed to going out and buying food which is wrapped in plastic from a supermarket and essentially contributing to the meat industry which, as a lot of you probably know, has there's a lot of controversy surrounding it due to the way they treat their animals and mass production.
1: This obviously just means locally you can't justify shooting
0: lions in Zimbabwe if you live in Kent. And although a lot of arguments for trophy hunting say that they aid sustainability because of the profit they make, actually since 2015, the popularity of trophy hunting has significantly declined. And arguably this was due to the shooting of Cecil the Lion in Zimbabwe, who was actually a very famous lion because he was featured on a lot of photos and he was quite well known. And therefore when he was shot by, I think it was a doctor from Germany shot him, obviously his name is not disclosed. There was a lot of outcry, so trophy hunting and the conservation parks which allow this are actually not making as much money as they would. Because for example, a hectare of land in a conservation park, so to maintain it, that costs around seven to eight dollars. And obviously, as you can expect, conservation parks are absolutely massive. They can be upwards of half a million hectares. And if you do the maths, that will cost over $3 million to maintain if the conservation parks are allowing less animals to be killed, which obviously do come with a hefty price tag. They're essentially just won't be profiting enough for trophy hunting to aid sustainability and conservation in any shape or form. In some African countries, they've actually made trophy hunting illegal,
1: such as in Kenya and partially in Botswana. Interestingly, in South Africa, they've been using other ways to allow hunters to fulfill their thrill, by letting them shoot vitamin or tranquilizer dart when the animals are due for a vet inspection. I think this is definitely something that other countries could adopt as a way of funding conservation attempts without trophy hunting. And also, I'm sure this would attract way more interest because I know personally, I would definitely never trophy hunt, but if I was in a position where the vet said to me, you know, we're going to shoot this lion with tranquilizer anyway, would you like to do it? I'd be like, do you know what? Sure, what an experience.
0: Yeah, that's totally fair enough, but I also think that you do need to consider that the appeal with trophy hunting is not just the thrill of shooting the animal, but it's also the fact that you then get to take a trophy home, whether it be the tusks or the skin or a lion or a lion head, etc. So, obviously, the majority of the time from the research I've done, the people who do trophy hunt are white men from the States or, you know, Germany or Europe who have a lot of money. They want to show off to their friends and bring back a trophy and say, look, I have all this money to go to a conservation park in Africa, pay for flights, pay for a cabin, do a hunting trip, which as we said, costs a lot of money and they usually last for about a week. And then of course you'd want to take a trophy home. We're fully aware that we've
1: probably piled you with so much information during this podcast, but we just hope that you can take some of this away. And if not, then just go do some more research yourself. We really enjoyed filming this podcast while recording this podcast. And we hope you enjoyed listening to it.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for listening. And we will catch you next week.